Well, good morning, church. Missed y'all. I was gone last Sunday. Decided I should probably go to my nephew's wedding on Saturday night. I was in Indiana and spent time then with my mom. Haven't seen her in a while. She's uh, 89, in case you're wondering. So every moment you get with your mom, it's important, right? Um, so that time visiting was good, and I missed seeing you guys, but we watched online. And I was just thinking, what's taking place in the last week uh, in all this? I know there's a lot. So some of you right now uh, in this room, and people watching online too, probably going through a lot of emotion. Um, graduation. Some of you have had open houses in this room and in the other part of the building and, and open houses. I can't believe some of you are here that you're actually awake. We'll, we'll see in the next 30 minutes. But um, because of all that's gone on with all the open houses and all the sugar you have taken in, and we'll see if that kicks you up pretty hard. And, and um, for the parents, grandparents, it's at the emotional stage of they're moving on. What's next? And then some of you um, have lost somebody special to you this week. And uh, you've maybe are dealing with the loss of a loved one. So the emotion can be all over the place this morning. So it's, it's good to be able to come here and uh, to gather together to worship. To sort of get refocused. And God, what do you want me to do? How do I handle things that in my life? To seek the wisdom of a mighty God. And we'll be doing that today. I'm going to throw one more plug in for that Sanctus Real concert on Wednesday night, 6 o'clock over at Pettis Mill Missionary Church. It is for anybody. I know FCA is sponsoring it, but it's for anybody. And I'd love to see as many people there as possible just to, to be able to worship. The last 25 minutes is going to be about five kids uh, from five different counties sharing about what God's doing in their life, in their schools through FCA. So it'll be a fun night. Um, you're more than welcome to be a part of that. Grab your Bibles. And open them up to the book of James. Located towards the end of the Bible, in case you're wondering. Uh, what we're going to soon learn, though, is actually one of the first books written in the New Testament. But even though it's towards the back. And, uh, of course, you know, you think, well, who's the author of this book? Well, he put his name right out there, so that helps. It's James. James wrote his own letter here, his own book. But the question is, which James? There are quite a few James listed through the Bible. And we better make sure we've got the right one. Uh, so let's assign this book to James the Just, the brother of Jesus. And some of you are saying, wait a second. Jesus had a brother? Oh, he had a lot of brothers and sisters. And it's like, well, where do we learn all this? So we're going to give you, I'm going to give you probably about 20 minutes of background of James. And then the last 10, 15 minutes or so, depends how windy I get. Um, there's some of the first few verses in this book. Uh, will hopefully challenge you. Now, I will admit I'm a little intimidated because I know some of you have been doing a study in the book of James. Some of you have been memorizing James. And so I'm sitting there going, man, I, I hope what I said pairs up with them. But hopefully you'll get something new and hopefully you can always challenge me too. And the fun part about this over the summer is that I'm going to have some special guests come in here and there uh, throughout the summer, um, including our own Brian Hollinsworth, you know, to, to share from the book of James as well. So it's not just me giving you one perspective of this book. So now where was I? Oh yeah, the family of Jesus. He's the head of his brothers. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 to 56, you can see it on the screen. I'll read it to you. Jesus returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed with what he said. 
Where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? Then they scoff. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters living right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? Now, if you want to get technical, he's a half-brother because uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. James was conceived by Joseph and Mary. So if you want to get technical, but they're, they're siblings. They're brothers. And I'm just trying to imagine what it was like for James and his brothers and sisters to grow up in the same house as Jesus. Just think about that. If you've got siblings, you know how this all goes down. Because you can just sort of sit there and think of that whenever there was a fight, whenever something got broke, whenever there was an argument, you'd hear Mary say, James, come on. Why can't you be like your brother, Jesus? Yeah, right? And then, you know, I could hear her say, hey, Simon, Simon, can, can you please get to work on your chores? Jesus got his all done. Okay? Or maybe, Judas, why are you so negative? Why can't you... Be full of joy like Jesus is, right? Or hey, maybe Joseph walks in. Mary, Mary, you should see what Jesus just made out in the shop with me. He is so creative with wood. Kids, James, why aren't you creative like Jesus, right? I don't know. Maybe they're all gathered together. And James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, girls. Somebody tell me what happened here. I want to know the truth. If Jesus was here, he'd tell the truth. Come on. Matter of fact, I'm getting you all bracelets. And they're going to have four letters on them. WWJD. Yeah, right? That's where it all started. Right back there in the carpenter shop. Joseph made bracelets with WWJD on them. Okay, maybe not really. But can you sort of imagine what it was like growing up in that house? All the things that went on. All the comparisons. And then through that, now some of you know this. Especially if you've got multiple siblings. I've got four brothers, one sister. There are six of us. And everybody says, because I'm the youngest, I was the favorite. I don't know about that, but I probably was. But anyway, um, there was always accusations being made. And it's like if somebody was favored above everybody else or treated differently, the rest of the siblings kicked in. So there's maybe some ill will towards them, maybe. Maybe it happened in your house, I don't know. But could you think maybe it happened here? Because as you read through more scripture, the brothers didn't get along with Jesus. Now, why would I say that? Well, I guess through looking through Scripture, I'm thinking about this. Jesus begins his ministry. He has great teaching. Everybody loves hearing him teach. He's doing incredible miracles. They're watching all this. His popularity is just booming off the charts, right? Meanwhile, however, we read in John 7, starting in verse 2, it says this. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, in sort of a snarky tone here, why don't you leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles? You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, go show yourself off to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe him. Ooh. After 30 years, probably 25, 30 years, depending on the age of his siblings that were below him, all those years of living with Jesus, and as you sort of get this, we don't believe you, dude. You proclaim you're the son of God, whatever. No, we're not seeing it. We don't believe it. Mark chapter 3, verses 20, 21. They thought he was crazy. It says this. One time, Jesus entered a house. The crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. They said, he's out of his mind. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Cuckoo, right? A little crazy. Hey, Jesus, we don't believe him, and he is crazy. He's a loony. 
That's just the way it is, right? This is the kind of the feeling they had. His siblings struggled with Jesus. But something changed in James. We don't know when. I've got my opinion. But we, we think maybe it was possibly, possibly after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Maybe that's when things started to change. I don't know, but we do know this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, it says this. This is Paul talking. He says, Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by who? James. And later by all the apostles. Last of all, and though I had been born at the wrong time, Paul says, I also got to see him. Quick history lesson here. And understanding all this with what was going on for James, he was not really fond of his brother, didn't believe him, thought he was crazy, at least from what we're understanding in the, the background. And then he has Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to him. Hey, brother, I'm alive. It's all real, right? Now, let me give you some more, little more history to all this. After Jesus died, the followers of Jesus Christ were like spiritually on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit. They went to preach with boldness and courage. Their faith swept Jerusalem to the point where basically people were starting to persecute them, one by the name of Saul. Religious leader just did not like this new movement. So he actually had one of the believers, Stephen, killed. Over, over watched the whole thing go down, like, yep, I'm actually going to go around and I'm going to start persecuting believers. I'm going to hunt down Christians and put them to death. But on his way of doing that, the resurrected Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus. That's when Saul's life was changed forever. And his name was changed to Paul as well, where he wrote all these other books in the New Testament, right? So Saul's converted. Church is growing. We read, and you can see this on the screen, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says this, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went from Antioch, from Cyprus and Cyrene, began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Now understand this, because in Jerusalem all these new Christians, they were being persecuted, they were being pushed out of the city, they're like running for their lives. But as they ran, they took the gospel with them. So they weren't just telling the Jews about Jesus, they were telling now the Gentiles and everybody else about Jesus. They scattered with the word of God, which is great because we know Jesus said this is for everybody, right? Remember, he talked to the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman shared it with the village. If you go on maybe beyond that, we think about when uh, Peter visited a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, shared it with his family. They actually ate some food that they weren't supposed to eat as Jewish people. But he said this is for everyone. We think of Philip, who spoke to a eunuch. He's like, I'm going to share the gospel with you too. It's all of a sudden, it was like, we're supposed to share the gospel with everybody, not to just to one group of people. Well, in AD 41, 44, stay with me here, King Herod Agrippa is ruling. So while all this is going on, King Herod comes in, and he's like, you know what? Um, this movement is 
sort of bad because people aren't listening to me. They don't see me as their king. They're following this other so-called king of kings. So I'm going to take care of this. And he took one of the disciples and he put him to death. It was James, the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, one of the disciples, was put to death. When he saw how much everybody liked it, everybody's like, yeah, that was fun. He's like, let's do it again. So he arrests Peter, puts Peter in prison. He's going to have Peter executed. That night in prison, as he is praying, as the church is praying for Peter, God rescues Peter. He frees him. He walks out of the prison cell. It's like the chains drop, the doors open, the guards are like fast asleep, whatever it might be. They're knocked out. He just walks out. He goes to the house where the church has been praying for him. Guys, it's Peter. They go to the door. Guys, it's Peter. Girl answers. She's like, it can't be Peter. He's in prison. She goes back and tells everybody. Somebody's knocking at the door. He says his name is Peter. It's like, just let it go. Let's keep praying. And God, please release Peter from prison. And so they're still praying, you know. And it's like, guys, it's Peter. And they're like, really? And they open the door and they just go nuts. It gets loud. How do we know that? Because Acts chapter 12, verse 17, he says, he motioned for them to quiet down. And that God had let him out of prison. Now, check out what happens next. What's the first thing he says? Tell who? James, the brother of Jesus. Tell James and the other brothers what happened. And then Peter took off to another place. Why? Okay, so why tell James? I and mean, that's Peter's biggest concern. He just meets with the church. It's been praying for him. I've been freed. God answers prayer. Yay, God. Okay. So, but guys, do me a favor. Tell James what happened. He needs to know. Why does he need to know? Let me come to an answer to that in just a second. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Paul and Barnabas... Now, you have to remember, when we read the Bible, it's like, well, this book's and this book, this book's so sort of work that way. Read it chronologically sometime. You'll read through as you're going through after the, the Gospels with Jesus, the stories of Jesus, and Jesus is resurrected, and you have the book of Acts. Halfway through Acts, we get Galatians, we get James, a little bit more of Acts, and we get a few more books that Paul wrote, and more Acts. That's sort of the way it rolls. So meanwhile, while Peter's just getting released from prison, Paul and Barnabas are beginning their missionary journey. And while they're on their journey, let's see what happens. They share the good news. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Paul and Barnabas are saying, Brothers, listen, we're here to proclaim through this man Jesus that there is forgiveness of your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. What we need to understand is, Paul and Barnabas are out preaching the gospel. The gospel is this, salvation by faith. We are made right with God when we believe. That's what they're preaching. goes on to say, as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged him to speak about these things again next week. Many Jews and devout converts in Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them, continue to rely on what? The grace of God. Faith. Salvation is by faith, not by works. And the good news is a lot of people were believing. Jews were believing, Gentiles were believing, all these people are believing. However, unfortunately, there were some men that didn't like his message. They were very strict in their religious beliefs. And they say, no, 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 no. It isn't by faith alone. There's, there, you, you need to get circumcised. So if you're going to join our faith, our, what we believe about Christianity, in Judaism, what we believe... Y'all, men, you need to get circumcised. And, and Paul and Barnabas are like, no, 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 that's not the way it works. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. I know you're all in James, but you can look on the screen. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived, began to teach the believers. Unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you can't be saved. 
Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing venomously. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles about this question. So is salvation by faith or by works? Now, this was being discussed a couple thousand years ago, but we still deal with this in the church today. There are some churches that preach that it's faith or salvation is by your works, not by your faith. You've got to work your way to heaven. Give a certain amount of money for the offerings. Show up for church. Do good things. You've got to earn your way to heaven. But we know Scripture says salvation is by faith, not by works. If it's by works, and we boast about the things we did, right? We're like, hey, look what I did. I've made my way to heaven. It's by your belief. So you've got all this discussion going on, and they're like, we've got a problem here. We need to figure this all out. So we're going to send you off to meet. Well, it says, when they arrived in Jerusalem... Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. So then they went with this big meeting, and they said, we got to discuss how the church is going to grow. The church is just starting. We better get this right, because for hundreds of years, thousands of years, we're going to be the result of what takes place at this meeting. Salvation, is it by faith alone? By faith and works? By works? What, what is it? It's that this meeting, the discussion takes place, and after all these men have, have gotten up and they've shared their opinions and, and the truth, it's time for somebody to get up and wrap up the meeting and declare how we move forward. So you need that leader. Guess who stepped up to the podium? James. At this point in time, this is considered the Jerusalem Council. James steps up in Acts 15, 13. He says, brothers, listen to me. And from there, James spells out what we're going to do as a church. Faith. Faith. That is where your salvation lies. Salvation by faith. But it is going to be followed by your works as well, which is what his book gets into. After he concludes with his message... Paul, who's at that meeting, recognizes James, thank you very much. You are a pillar of this church, of the church. Matter of fact, he says uh, in Galatians 2.9, he says, In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognize the gift God has given me. They accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. See, what happened is, after this meeting, Paul's like, time for missionary trip number two. So he gets Barnabas, or I think it was Barnabas, he gets, and they go off on their next missionary journey, missionary trip number two. And as he's traveling, he's writing the book of Galatians. He writes a letter to Galatia. So right after Acts 15, Galatians is being wrote. Meanwhile, guess what James is doing? He's starting to write the book of James. So James really actually follows smack dab in the middle of Acts if you want to know where it chronologically fits. And this is all that is going on. It is a very pivotal time in the church. Do we believe that salvation is by faith or by works? And they've just figured this out, this big council meeting. And so Paul takes off on a missionary journey to make sure he's sharing it. He's writing the letter to Galatians. If you read through Galatians, it's like, that's why Galatians makes sense now. And then if you're reading James, it's like, ah, so James is like, it is about faith, but... There are some works. Now, why would he include that? Because they just had this big discussion about circumcision and, and what was expected from the Jews, right? 
But when James starts off his letter then, as he's sitting here, the meeting's done, and who knows how many days uh, transcend between him and writing that letter. He starts off with his letter saying, Hi, my name is James. I'm a slave, a bondservant to Jesus Christ. That's how he starts James chapter 1. If you're looking at James chapter 1 right now, you can see that in the first verse. And it's like, whoa. He doesn't like, hey, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. Yeah, you probably never heard of me. You all know about Jesus. I'm the next brother. When I fall in the middle, right? Middle child, nobody knows him, right? That's me, James. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I'm a slave, a bondservant. Basically this, my position, I'm in permanent position to my master. I have no say in what he wants me to do. And whatever he wants me to do, I'm all in. That's my role. That's who I am. And I have no beef with it. I'm okay with serving my master. I would do whatever my master is. That's the role of the bond servant. I'll carry out those orders, no matter how I feel. I'm not feeling it today, Jesus. No, that doesn't work when you're the bond servant. The bond servant is, you want me to do this? I'll get it done. There's no whining. There's no complaining. There's no, I don't feel it, right? James was more than a brother. He was more than actually a servant. He believed he, he believed. He followed with great devotion. An early church historian said when describing James, they said, he got on his knees and he prayed so much that he had calloused knees. They nicknamed him camel knees because he prayed so hard so often. Another historian says that when he died, he was thrown off of a temple place, but he didn't die when he hit the ground. So then they came in and they started beating him to death. But while they beat him to death, he prayed for those that were beating him. That was his devotion to Jesus. I'll live for you, and I will die for you. A brother, a bondservant, a believer, a very devoted believer. Now that you know a little bit more background to James, let's look at this book in Scripture. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Let's linger on that for just a little bit. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Jesus, I'm sorry, James knew that troubles, trials, problems are going to happen. It's not if, it's when. If you're in this room and I did marriage counseling with you, You'll remember maybe our discussion when I said, oh, when you have your first argument. Well, not if you're going to have your first It's when you have your first argument. And when, it's not if you have problems in your marriage. It's when you have problems. You will have trouble. It's going to happen. It's not if, it's when. And when it comes your way. What do you mean when it comes my way? you got different translations. Uh, some of your translations might say falls into. Others say comes your way. Let me give you a picture like this. If there's that certain person that you don't get along with, you don't like, or somebody's like, ooh, I don't ever want to run into them, okay? And let's say you're walking at the fairgrounds, or let's say you're walking in a mall or a big store, and you see that person coming down that, that aisle or in that direction, and you're like, oh, don't want to see them. They're coming your way, right? And you're like, I'm out of here. And you can turn and go down a different direction, right? But when you are on a sidewalk or in your school hallway, 
and you only got one direction, or you're on the road and you only got one direction, when they come your way, guess what? You have to meet them. There's no avoiding them. When trouble comes your way, I didn't invite it. I know, it's out of your control, isn't it? Nobody invites trouble. So sometimes people mess around enough that they actually do. But anybody in their right mind would never say, hey, I'm looking forward to an issue today. I could, I could really deal with trouble today. But when it comes your way, it's like, I can't avoid it. What, what do I do about this? As I said before, it's also translated, uh, falls into. So if you can sort of picture, and I've, I'm, I'm trying to imagine this, but, you know, because I've watched various movies or whatever, but like you're walking through the woods or somewhere and you fall into a hole, okay? You just felt, you weren't paying attention and boom, it's like, I fell into a hole. And you look around, all you got is walls of dirt, right? And it's like, well, all, all I see around me is trouble, no way out. So where do, where do we look? We look up, right, with the place where you fell through. When you are falling into something, when trouble comes your way, we got to redirect our focus to an upward solution, right? All right, God, I've got an obstacle in my life. Now, I love how a friend of mine, Tanya Cravey, always says, when obstacles come your way, look at them as an opportunity. I'm thinking, yeah, that's sort of what this is. Any obstacle, any trouble that comes our way, maybe this is going to be an opportunity. Actually, wait, wait a minute. That's what James said. When trouble comes your way, consider it what? This is an opportunity for joy. He didn't say, oh, this is a joyful thing. Trouble's coming. Yes, I was looking for some joy in my life. And it's trouble. No, it says, it's an opportunity for joy. We see troubles and obstacles we, we look at them, we don't like them, but you know what? Oh, wait, this might be an opportunity. Like, how so, Rex? Please tell me. How could this be an opportunity? Let's rewind back to when I was talking about Peter. Remember when Peter was put in prison? He was going to be put to death the very next day. He was hours away from execution. That's, I will call that trouble. Okay, wouldn't you agree? That's pretty troublesome. And what did the church do? They got on their hands and knees and they prayed. And they prayed. And God rescued them, right? As God rescued Peter, Peter shows up at the house where they've been praying. And he couldn't believe it. Well, after all, they've been praying, right? Isn't that the way it works? We pray, we pray, and when God answers, like, I can't believe God answered prayer. Isn't that what God does? Well, we have little faith, right? That obstacle, that horrific problem became what? An opportunity for joy. The church, as they were praying, they get done praying. Like, yeah, they were so loud. What would what, what Peter say? Guys, guys, quiet down. I know you're excited. I know you're pretty joyful right now, right? You're full of joy because this was an opportunity for joy. What was supposed to be trouble turned into an opportunity for joy. The obstacle becomes opportunity. Look at verse 3. James goes on to say, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, I don't want to make light of any troubles that you and I are going through. I have troubles in my life. You have troubles in your life. We all have various troubles, various degrees. It doesn't matter what it is, but when it comes at you, it hurts. It's challenging, right? But when I look at the troubles that James is referring to, James is like, um, my brothers in Christ are being thrown into an arena with lions. They're being mauled by lions. 
my brothers who worship Jesus are being tied up at stakes and lit on fire like torches. My brothers in Christ who I worship with are being put to death by stones. My brothers and sisters in Christ are being put in prison. That's who James is writing to, all these troubles. And then when I look at my own life and I think about the, lot, the problems that come my way, they don't even compare. They don't compare to that, right? Unfortunately, today, in a lot of anti-Christian nations, Christians are still being put to death. You may not know this, but since 1900, 29 million believers in Christ have been put to death. In the last 120 years, 29 million Christians were murdered because they believe in Jesus. Not because they were in an accident. They were purposely persecuted and put to death because of their faith. Basically, before you and I wake up tomorrow morning and get to work, another Christian will have died because they believe in Jesus Christ. So when I think about the nation that we live in here right now, I'm thankful for my Christian freedom that I have. But my, my problems are not like what others in this world face. But James is saying, I'm writing to believers who are going through whatever troubles you may be going through. Hang in there. Hang in there. Be patient. He says, for when, when, you're embra- when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now that word endurance translates in different passages, maybe patience in your scripture if you get a different translation. But basically it's a couple of words that are put together that basically says, this is my spot and I'm not moving. That kind of endurance, that kind of patience. If you're in the military, you basically, your general, your commander said, I want you to take this ground and I want you to hold this ground. And when your enemy comes battling and fighting hard, do not retreat. Do not give up your ground. Stand your ground. Do not waver. That's the word that's being used here. You're not going to budge one inch. I'm staying right here. And basically this word is like some people are like, well, I'm going to be patient. It's like I'm sitting in the hospital room uh, or waiting room waiting for results of, a, of an exam or maybe somebody's in surgery and you're waiting and you're waiting. It's like I'm going to be endurance. It's not that kind of endurance. It's the kind of endurance that says I'm running a marathon right now and I'm going to keep running. That's the kind. It's an active, patient endurance. You follow me, church? So as you're looking at this, these times of troubles, faith is being tested, by the way. It's not being produced. Troubles don't produce faith. They reveal your faith. Tough times basically show what we believe in and who we believe in. God doesn't need to test you or give a trouble your way to see, I wonder if they still believe in me. Here comes some trouble. God doesn't do that. He already knows where you stand. But you see, when troubles come our way and we endure that trouble and we endure that testing, you know who knows What we believe in? Everybody else. Everybody's looking at you. (laughs) When you face troubles, how's your faith hold up? It's not, your faith isn't being produced. Your faith is actually being revealed in those times. And understand this, your spiritual enemy wants to know if you're going to stand. Your spiritual enemy wants you to retreat. The work of patient endurance comes slowly. But we have to allow it time to mature. And it takes time. Patient endurance, that's, that's the mark that we're aiming for here. It, it's sort of like this. It's the difference between a puppy and a full-grown dog. 
okay? So if you've if you had a puppy at your house, you sort of know how this goes down, right? You look around, you come home, that little puppy's so excited to you, wiggling its little tail, its hind end is moving with it because it's just so happy, and then it jumps all over you and looks all over you like, oh, it's so good to see my little puppy, right? But then you look around the house, and then you're like, oh, there's parts of the couch, and they bit on that furniture, and well, that stuffed animal is now shredded, and and if, you're, if you're, your puppy is so nice, it maybe even left you a little surprise on the living room floor, right? And all of a sudden, it's not so cute cute anymore, right? That little puppy might need some training. It needs some maturing, right? Same way then as you discipline that puppy, as the puppy gets older into a dog, it learns to behave. It learns how to act. It learns not to to create havoc and messes. It becomes a very faithful dog. That's sort of like the maturing process we're talking about here in the scripture. As we endure we mature. We grow. Look at verse 5. It says, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God. He'll give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. See, here's the thing. When troubles come our way, guess what God's saying? You know, James like, okay, you got troubles. When troubles come, consider an opportunity for joy, right? Hang in there. I know this is hard. Hang in there. You will grow. You will mature. But ask God for help. When troubles come your way, ask God for help. Ask him for the wisdom. We often don't know we need wisdom until we hit that point of trouble and difficulty, right? And the thing is, we Google a lot, right? Hey, Siri, help me out. Here's the thing. You can get all the information in the world you need. We don't need information. We need wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the information. God's like, I give you a lot of information, but I tell you, what to do with that information, how to make the choices, how to survive. That's what I want to give you. I want to, I want, you might know how to pull things apart. I can help you put it back together. That's the wisdom of God. And when he says, ask, it's actually a command. It's a command. If you need wisdom, ask. No, you, I'm, that's not a suggestion. Ask God for wisdom. What should we do in this area? What should I do about such and such, right? You don't need more education. You don't need more information. You need wisdom to know what to do with what's going on. He Listen, he is the God of the open hand, not a clenched fist. That is our God. And a lot of times we're afraid to ask God because it's like, he's probably going to make me do this. God's like, I'm a generous God. I'm not coming at you like this. I'm coming at you like this. And I want to give you this wisdom. I want to pour it out upon you. I'm a very generous God. And here's the thing, though. There's sort of a condition in this. It says, when you ask of God. There's a phrase in Greek, of God, which means in proximity, meaning alongside, very close, very next to. It says, if a person comes up right beside you, that close. You ever had that conversation with that person? You're talking to them, and they just they get right in your face, and you're like, okay, Got a little bubble here. You're in my bubble, right? Um, some of us are that way, and that's, I understand that. But God's like, get in my bubble. Get right next to me. I want you to be close to me. You need to have a relationship with me. Troubles are coming your way. And you're going to have to stand and endure this. But you're going to need to know how to do this. Ask me. Ask me. I'm God, and I will give generously. But you've got to be beside me. Because if you're far away from me, I can't give it to you. You've got to be in close proximity. God wants a relationship with us. 
so often we become so busy with the things in our lives, don't we? Some of you have had, and I myself included, have had very busy schedules this past week. Running here and there and everywhere. And God's like, whoa, slow down. Come into my presence. Come into my presence. I miss you. We need, we need to talk. Sometimes we don't stay long enough in the presence of God for us to share our hearts. We just like, hey, God, I need this. Okay, got to go. I got I got more stuff I got to do. And God's like, just linger with me, would you please? Just be asked of God by my side. Because here's what happens. When we, when we start spending more time with God, he gets to know some other things that are going on in our heart that we really need help with and gives us even more direction than we could ever think. Worship team, would you come forward, please? Church, I want you to think about this. Why, why would God, who's a generous God, why would he do this? like, hey, come here, get next to me. Go ahead, go ahead. Ask me for wisdom. Ask me for wisdom. God, can you give me the wisdom to... Nope. <laughs> gotcha. I mean, do we really think God's like that? Or do we think he's stingy? Like, well, I'm only going to tell you a little bit, but you got to come back tomorrow for the rest of the story. God's a generous God. He's not a stingy God. When we think about this, knowing God's generosity, he never despises or resents us for asking for wisdom, does he? He wants us to ask. He commands us, ask. I want to give it to you. Think about this. You're his child. He wants to impart that to you. As a parent, if I could give my kids, you know, I think about what have I not taught my kids yet? Oh, yeah, they're... One of them's out of the house and married. One will soon be, you know, in a year or so, he might be out of the house. I don't know. Another one, it's like, okay, have I taught them everything they need to know? Probably not. What else do I need to impart to them? God's sort of the same way. He's like, I got so much I want to share with you. So much wisdom. But you got to be here, be with me. That up close, side by side encounter of God is what we need. You know what? James had that. The brother of Jesus, James, had that. He grew up with Jesus side by side. They ate together. They slept in the same room together. Siblings didn't share the same room. The family shared the same room when they slept at night, typically. They, they walked together. They worked together. They had all this side by side, but James did not know who Jesus was. Some of us are like that. We go to church all the time. We do Christian things all the time, but we don't know who Jesus really is. Until we have that moment that encounter that changes everything. All of a sudden, it's like, now I know who Jesus is. And when James figured out who Jesus was, he became a leader in the church. says, I want everybody to know who Jesus is and what he's done for you and I. Salvation is by faith. Place your faith in him. And as you place your faith in him, then go do it. James would be, I used to be a doubter. Now I'm a doer. I, I used to not like him. I love him. How about you? I want to encourage you this week. Carve out a little bit more time in your schedule this week for some one-on-one with God. Get close to him. Open up his word. Spend time in prayer. Turn on some worship music and just get quiet. Turn off your schedule just for a while. The more we do that, I believe you're going to see some, some more maturing and growing in, in our lives. And that's what we all need, right? Would you stand, please? Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. 
I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the opportunity to know you. I thank you that you've given us such religious freedom in this nation that we can gather in churches to worship you with not worrying about a police, a government, somebody busting in here and putting us in prison because we believe. And So God, thank you for the freedom that we have. But God, help us not take advantage of that. Help us to not forget the price that was paid for these kinds of freedoms. Lord, I thank you that you give us new life now because we can come to you and confess our sins to you, a holy God. You can forgive us of these sins and you give us your spirit so that we can live a new life. God, like James, I want to be side by side in your presence so I can be close to you, so I can know you. So when I ask God, I need help with this. You as a generous God freely gives direct me in the way that I should go. God, I pray that for this church too. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you. Help us to grow in our relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We want to sing to you now, Lord. In our name we pray. Amen.